Welcome to episode two of Hanging On for Hope. I'm your host, Andrea Page, and today's guest is going to be a very special, dynamic woman who really um, impressed me as soon as I had contact with her. She reminded me a lot of my younger self when I had more energy and more fight, uh, that energy and fight that's coming back. Um, And uh, we're going to talk a lot today about what it has taken for her to get to this place where the healing that has had to come for her in facing what has gone on uh, for a lost family member, um, uh, facing you know, her own healing and getting to a place of true advocacy. She reminds me a lot of the Erin Brockovich of fighting for restorative justice and uh, um, reform in the justice system. Um, We're going to find a lot more about her today, but I wanted to leave you with this before we move on. That which does not kill you makes you stronger. A lot of us who get into advocacy, we do, it does become an obsession. It's true. We see things that need to change. um, And we know that something that we have suffered through or somebody we love has suffered through, had those changes been in place, that the outcome would have been very different. Advocacy is born, it's always born out of suffering. Um, And it is a place where people find their power, where they get empowered. Because the truth is, when you have experienced highly traumatic things in life, yes, you do need to heal from it, but you have to find yourself empowering yourself and others in order to get up every day. Um, That is the truth. What does not kill you, it has to make you stronger because the alternative is letting it destroy your life. Um, So, without further ado, let me introduce our next guest. So, welcome to the show, Jessica Robinson. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and tell your story. So, before we just kind of delve into everything that you've been through, just just tell me a little bit about you. I think you're a mom of three. How old are you? Where do you live? Okay, um, my name is Jessica Robinson. I have three super awesome kids. My son is 20. My daughters are two and seven. We live in London, Ontario here. Um, I'm almost 40, pushing that number pretty quickly here. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I wanted to talk about your situation. So I, as you know, have started this podcast to shed light on experiences of life that unfortunately are having tragic outcomes because people are just simply not getting the help they need. Yeah, it's um, a whole mess. Yeah, and I just want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about a few different issues, but let's start with how you got here. So. You've become a, an amazing advocate. You wouldn't have heard this yet, but I actually just uh, um, compared you to Aaron Brockovich. Oh, uh, wow. how you strike me. You are just this dynamic, energetic woman who is just full of passion and life. And, and you get down to the nitty gritty. Like, 
But before we get into all the amazing things that you're doing, I'd really like you to tell me a bit about your sister's story. So let's first start with what happened 10 years ago. Um, Okay, well. So if you could just kind of tell me in your own words, kind of what happened with your sister and the outcome. And then I'd like to to dig a little deeper into the things that she was going through. That's, well, first of all, thank you very much. That's beyond flattering and more than I could ever see for myself. Um, 10 years ago, man, life was good back then. Um, You know, I was very, very tight with my brother and sister. We were, you know, the three amigos. We would call each other brother bear and sister bears. And we moved around a whole lot as kids in different schools. So it was always the dynamic of us. That was, that was just what it was. Anybody who knew any of us knew the other two of us. It's just, you know, that's just how we were. And that's how we always grew up is this huge tight bond together. Um, So some pretty tragic things happened that just tore my family apart from the inside out. Um, My brother was away working in Calgary at the time. And my sister um, was going through a little bit of rough times with postmortem depression um, and kind of just like feeling separated and trying to get things adjusted with her doctors and, and get her, her stuff back together and on track there. She, um, started dating a, a certain gentleman and that caused her a lot of problems and a lot of abuses and sent her into hiding from it. And just, it's a scary place to be as a woman, I suppose you could say. Um, ultimately, you know, she she was found at a certain spot and a fight ensued where they were and she was charged with assault. Um, she had no criminal record aside from the assault. So she was arrested by the London police. Um, reading through the files, I, I had noted that um, she told the police officer that she had just gotten her H1N1 vaccine shot and it was making her feel very sick. And she was complaining quite a bit about a sore throat. And uh, they kind of shrugged that off as, you know, nerves, right? Like this girl's scared. She just mm-hmm. got arrested. They, they put her in, in the holding cells. Yeah. So um, by morning um, in the holding cells in the police station, they found her unresponsive. They were unable to wake her up. Um, and stated that she was very lethargic. So they took her, what is something you should do when you find somebody in that situation, to the hospital. Um, The hospital noted um, that she was obviously not feeling well and sent instructions um, that she could be released, but to monitor her um, for any change in her her health. Now, at that time, in 2009, there was the H1N1 epidemic going around all across Canada. I mean, it, it took 8,000 lives. So right. places like EMDC um, had been given special orders to do a screening. Even, sorry, even what is, sorry, Jessica, sorry to interrupt. What That's, is EMDC? Oh, EMDC stands for Alga Middlesex Detention Center. So that's where she was to be going until she could go for bail hearing um, to be released on the charge that she was arrested for. So they had an H1N1 screening in place, which she failed. Um, Their protocol that was handed down to them from the ministry was that if somebody was flagged, that they were supposed to be segregated into a health unit and monitored closely. 
Um, from my understanding is due to overcrowding the one spot area that they had for that for medical or anything like that was being used as the hole so there was no area for her to be placed she was put um into the general population range oh, sorry it's really hard to like kind of kind of get through this um that's okay take your time thank you um, and just t- just take a couple deep breaths i really Uh, obviously personal understanding from from dealing with these kinds of life experiences that are 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 difficult to explain to the rest of the world it's it's Um, insane it's insane and yeah already what i said was enough to be like you know a story and be like what's going on and it gets so much worse andrea it gets so much worse um so the H1N1 screening that they had in place, they didn't notify the nurse or staff. Her hospital paperwork was filed in her personal belongings, not transferred to anybody on staff to be aware of that. Um, three days later, um, after multiple inmates tried to get her help and medical attention, I'm, I mean, from things we've heard, she wasn't even able to press the water dispenser on, you know, a fountain. Like, she was that ill. Her hands and feet were severely swollen. Um, at one point, they actually carried my sister to the nurse's station, quite a few of them, and demanded that they take a look at her. Um, so the one time she did see the nurse finally after days um she hadn't eaten or drank anything the entire time she was there the nurse um stated during the coroner's inquest that her heart rate had been racing she had a high fever she was lethargic and dehydrated they chose not to take her to the hospital the nurse did tell the staff um during that shift to watch and monitor her closely. Um, those instructions were never written down and they were never communicated to other shifts. The pathologist, sorry, it, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, they were never communicated to? To the rest of the staff, to the other nurses right. that were in. No, nurses were only in like once or twice a week at this time. Um, right. And it was never handed over to the night staff. The pathologist, um, on stand said that these were obvious signs that her body was in shock and immediately immediate life-saving care should have been taken right off the hop like as soon as that was done um, on the third so yes sorry Go ahead. I was gonna say so Jessica your sister ultimately passed away from this neglect yeah, that, yeah is did. that correct yeah she did um so I want to uh, I, I want to get I want to touch on so many things in this episode and I know that and if I, I, I may choose to have you back because you are such a wealth of knowledge like I'm so I've learned so much from being in touch with you mm-hmm. I am forever grateful um, it was 10 years ago that your sister passed away is that correct in custody will be this November will be 10 years it'll be this November so what could you I can only imagine what your family went through in the months and years after 
um, especially in light of the fact that you know that she did not get the care she needed. Uh, I was reading some documentation that you had posted today about there seemingly being some cover-up, you know, some quite contradictory information in terms of, of... you know how your sister was responded to uh and i can only imagine how painful that was uh how powerless you must have felt how violated you must have felt like what were the weeks and months and years after this like for you and your family recovering my mom i don't know how she did it she she as hurt and devastated as she was she did her research she interviewed people she went over and above to get the actual truth out they they told my mom that she overdosed that that's what they told my mom but it was it was proven uh with uh nothing illicit in her system whatsoever absolutely nothing so for my mom to hear that that's that's a pretty huge and then to hear afterwards no 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 and then to finally get the coroner's report back and and to put these pieces together it's just it's too much it's too much for any one person i i don't know how how she did it i i could i didn't leave my bed for nine months i lied in bed i did what i had to do from my bed and i just that's what i did for a long time well it's interesting because when i think about systemic trauma and I think about the snowball effect that it has on families. You know, without you needing to share anything, I say, I always say, you know, when 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 people are going through things and they're not able to, you know, function in life because they're experiencing things. So you had mentioned your 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 sister had postpartum depression. Uh, I myself had postpartum depression with my oldest. Um, it's a a serious problem that and an illness that affects many new mothers um and leaves them vulnerable to a lot of a lot of things in terms of domestic abuse in terms of um not being able to care for their children properly because they themselves are not well it's a social issue because often mothers in this culture feel very isolated so you know without knowing what has gone on in your family in the years prior it would be fair for me to say and i'm not asking you to give me details but to say it sounds like you know your family has had some traumatic experiences leading up to these days so now your sister is in crisis and and she's in custody um and instead of getting help and i'm not even just talking about the help she needed because let's face it she was only in custody for how long five days five days She, she was in custody for five days so there was actually no chance for her to even get meaningful help for the issues that she was dealing with because she actually never got the help to deal with the illness that she had when she was incarcerated that's correct so we're now 10 years later and uh, you know there's no amount of time that can really um hold the space that you deserve to have held for you so i don't mean to sound like i'm rushing through this by any stretch because i i i know how hard this is for you to tell this story over and over and over again but i also want you to be able to shine some light on some of the the issues that are actually 
the things that stood in the way of your sister getting the help she needed aside from being kind of left to the corrections officer's judgment and i think we all know on the front lines that we're not blaming all corrections officers and in fact we all know that this is an extremely difficult job and that they're often not given enough support themselves but the truth of the matter is is that there are some bad apples we do know that just like any job like any in any job in any in any environment there's always kind of you know toxic people who in any human being there's good and bad yes yeah what's that for any for any group of human beings there's there's really good people and there's people that just don't care you know there's a collective group of them hardened to that culture there and and one might even say because they are exposed to trauma on a daily basis that if corrections officers are not being um subject to do, doing ongoing trauma treatment as a part of their job that they're not going to be able to do their job long term uh, i actually have a friend who was a corrections officer mm-hmm. who worked in the field for 10 years and left because he knew it was simply changing his personality i had a i had a cousin do the same thing she she worked at right. the institution um during the riots and stuff like that and she she ha- she left as well too and i mean she was right. uh, she was so, you mean holistic issues that we have to address completely yes completely so so but i just wanted to put that out there because i think when we're speaking to the general public we know that there, to to every issue there's a, a lot of perspectives right yes but i think when we're when we're looking at problem solving and what we're saying is we're dealing with human beings and we're dealing with human beings who have troubles and our goal should be to help them heal so what that needs to look like is we are showing up in a meaningful trauma informed responsible way so uh with that what i would like to do is now ask you to kind of share with me the things that you are working on that you have after you've taken all this time you know you've taken time to heal and to recover and work through and kind of come into your power as a woman who has gone through this highly traumatic event what i i have been so um amazed by the precision in which you are addressing issues you know exactly what needs to be done and exactly what you believe will help and i would like to hear more about that um well we started by just having the local families that we knew about gather first that that kind of brought everybody united together which was a beautiful thing and and it opened my eyes to hearing and learning about more families we started with the rallies um i did like a little black and white ribbon campaign trying to get the word out through that we are receiving hundreds of recommendations you know and that's already been submitted to legislation they already know about that so i'm sitting back and i'm thinking and i'm thinking and i'm like what can i do differently what like what can i do that addresses this in a different light that covers so every Jessica, can, I, can i ask you a quick question sure in regards in, in regards to these recommendations what year were those recommendations made um my sisters were made in 2011 and out of all how many recommendations were made do you know offhand yep 10 recommendations in Laura's case 
and how many recommendations have been implemented? Out of hers, I would have to say the nurse is on staff 24 hours a day now. Perfect. And, and that's it? Is that one out of 10? Yeah. Um, we found out that six of them, and I can't tell you off the top of my head what six, but six of them had been protocol for, I think, 10 years already, and protocol that was ignored, unused, or just shunned upon because they made them again. And like these, these jurors made these recommendations to save people's lives. And then my mom finds out that they were already in place and just not used. It, it's mind boggling. And, and I think it's so dishonoring to the families, to the victims, but more so to the families and, and the people who were dying afterwards. Like for me, when I when I seen these things, when I had the recommendations come through, I was like, oh my gosh, they, they see how to prevent this. Oh my God, her life matters. Oh my God, people are gonna be saved from this. I can't wait to tell her children that, you know, Laura died, but look at how many people are gonna be saved. And year after year after year, another person dies, another person dies, another person dies, more recommendations, more recommendations. And we're like, oh my God, it's, it's, I find it to be, I, I, I find it to be a form of like bureaucratic murder. They know how to prevent these deaths. They know about, they know how to do it. They made the family sit and watch and listen about what could have been done to save their, their child or a family member or loved one. And then they just let it slide. And that's, that's the thing that just gets me. It gets me right in the gut because it's so dishonoring to have them sit through that and wait for those answers and have this tiny glimpse of hope. And, and like, look, I'm here 10 years later. 10 years later. Yeah. And, I have and, a and only to take no action. Little, little to no, even acknowledgement. Little even acknowledgement. You know, what do you say to, you know, the average, and again, you know, I feel like there's a growing awareness, you know, because, you know, in, in the case of my son, I mean, my son was a child who I'd been asking for help all this time, and now he's caught up in the criminal justice system. Um, every day is, you know, it's like I said in my last podcast, you know, I say my son's alive today, but, you know, I, I say that all with attentiveness of almost a preparation for what could happen because I, I, for me, it feels like society has this attitude that, you know, that we don't have to treat people who are incarcerated like they're human beings because they've committed crimes. And I think the thing is for me is that everybody has a story that leads up until that time. And, and that when people have access to proper help, that they can have an opportunity to, to have a meaningful life. And then that actually everybody benefits. In the case of your sister, I mean, she had not even been convicted yet. Right. Right. I, I completely uh, agree. I completely agree. When it comes down to it, these are our citizens. And most will come out of those doors and continue to be our citizens. So do we want them to go in there and be even more traumatized, more hurt and more stiffened to the law and the corrections and the system altogether and be pushed further down into the secret holes? Or do we want to lift them up and give them the tools to succeed in life? We really got to ask ourselves that as a society. What do we want from this? Why are we paying the government all this tax money to punish these people? 
do we want to punish them and teach them a lesson or do we want to punish them and keep them down that's you know punish them and teach them how to commit more crimes exactly exactly because that's i mean that's something that's become very prevalent to me is that it is a, such a toxic environment that you could not possibly heal there's surviving it no matter how you look at it i mean even if you think about the people who are overdosing in there if you've got somebody who's traumatized or hurt or vulnerable in any sense going into a place like that there's no help if anything they're hit with massive depression and shame and guilt and the only thing available to them there for relief is drugs i mean i i just don't get how anything any of it is productive and how anybody is expected to come out of there succeeding it is very very troubling to me they need tools they need guidance they need schooling they need counseling available to them that's to me that's what a rehabilitation place should be that's what you know a detention center should be should be a rehabil- should be about rehabilitation 100% um, Now, because of what has happened with your sister, you're not even talking about the extent of rehabilitation. You're just talking about basic needs at this point because unfortunately in your case, you couldn't even get to that. So you are literally looking at the the very bottom basic human need is the the right to healthcare in an emergency. So, uh you have been um advocating for emergency buttons um for inmates to be able to access so they are not subject to a correction officer's opinion of their health and and knowing that corrections officers are not doctors or nurses i don't even know that we should be putting it on them to I actually agree. decide i agree um uh, the at the time the minister on stand at Laura's inquest said we are not a hospital and we cannot be expected to be treated like one so you know what you're right i get that to an extent but you also took away these people's rights you took away their rights their freedoms and now you're trying to take away their human rights their ontario rights the un agreements rights i mean it comes to a certain point where there there's like international laws being broken you cannot expect somebody to be in a cinder blocked room and for any reason your life be in jeopardy and just you know hope and scream and yell hey i'm dying this person's dying we need help and either them not care to come or slap a mattress up on the side of your bed like they did in Laura's case or even just walk on by i mean it's just that is unacceptable people need a right to access and they do have that right to access medical attention in a timely manner anywhere in canada behind any door in canada corrections facilities included and that's what's pushed me to really delve into what are the human rights instead of just this idea in my head that they're violating it let's get down to the nitty gritty let's find out exactly what they violated and let's hold them accountable that's what i'm which is which is why I called you the Aaron Brockovich of uh, the criminal justice system because I have been so amazed by you know with with no background in legalities you've been just kind of delving into all of these uh aspects of the law that have helped you to really articulate 
some really valuable points. Uh, if you could name one or two of those points, so I heard you quote uh, Nelson Mandela's law. Uh, is there some things that you would like to shed some light on that the average everyday person may not know about? Okay, well, the Nelson Mandela rules, um, in particular to the petition I've started, are rules 24 through 29 and 31. But um, in particular, rule 27, it states, all prisoners are entitled to prompt medical attention in the case of an emergency. And quality and timelessness of medical care should be no different than if the person was not incarcerated. There's violations to the Canadian Charter of Rights um, by leaving somebody in a state of severe distress is cruel and unusual punishment. There's violations to section seven and three, that's the public health care under the Ontario Charter of Rights. Your right to life, liberty and security is violated when you're in distress and your needs are not met. Those are just the ones off the top of my head. Um, as far as the Nelson Mandela rules, his are specific, there's a lot of them. It's, it's a lot to read. It took me a really long time to get through it and narrow it down. Those are rules in place that are agreed upon through the United Nations. So all the countries that have signed and agreed to that, those are a part of that and that are supposed to be enforced. Now in Canada, it's not an actual law, rather a litmus, which means that it's addressed and acknowledged and it can be used in a court, court to support a case. Wow. Yeah. God. <laughs> so who's listening to you other than people in this community who have loved ones and hopefully my listeners who are caring, wonderful people? Um, who's Who have you got to pay attention? Um, I will email everybody I can possibly think of. And I started off emailing people that probably don't have anything to do with this at all. But I'm emailing the MPPs that are involved in my jurisdiction under and under the control of the CSC. I've emailed Sylvia Jones. She's the Solicitor General. She used to be titled Minister of Corrections, but that's a different title now. Of course, I haven't heard back from her. Um, I've actually did a small little rally and then been invited to talk with Jeff Urich. He was super responsive, which was quite encouraging. Um, I've spoken with law professors. I've spoken with just about anybody I could. I've spoken with the ombudsman. She's fully supportive of this and put in a report to higher ups that um, they noted noted violations. So now I'm just trying to to get it out there. I'm just trying to get backing. So I've been speaking with um, colleges and universities. They are. This is very. This is very new with them. So we're setting up. Um, an information seminar that I can set at schools. I want to get university backing. I think that would be huge for spreading the word. The families have been super, super supportive. People like you that have learned about this and care and care to put the time in. Thank you. Thank you for that. Jessica, thank you. I can see that I, you know, this has been extremely emotional for you. Can you uh, just share with my listeners before we close off and I'm going to check in with you after we get off the phone and, and just talk with you like you and me um, what is the name of your Facebook group? Support Reform and Corrections Support Reform and Corrections Jessica I don't know if you want to talk anymore um, but I just wanted to let you know that you have been such an inspiration to me I know how deeply 
it cuts when you see somebody in your life that you love who is suffering that you don't know how to help to lose that person and to have to carry that for the rest of your life um especially in this nature where you don't necessarily have the support of the general public who understand like if you have somebody who a, a family member who dies in a car accident or or dies of cancer there's this instant compassion but you know it's almost like we have to earn this compassion and we have to share our stories to teach people that you know well before our loved one became incarcerated there was a lot of things that were going on in their lives and a lot of troubles that they needed support around that they did not get and to have it end so tragically is 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 really a shame on our society it is just a shame yeah. and i i just want to thank you for being such a, a phenomenal warrior and <laughs> you you don't have any clue how much you've inspired me um i probably i don't even think i realized it until this week where i saw you and your inspiration and i saw that fleck of light that has kind of always been in me where i was like okay time to embrace this is what is happening it sucks <laughs> it sucks it sucks uh but the only way to move through it is to rise above it that's that's what we're trying to do that's really yeah. what we're trying to do and let these people know they're not alone and we are capable and canada is capable of better I really believe it's so much capable of better. I expect more of my country. Yeah. Um I have made a lot of mistakes as a mom and as a human being and I have a history of trauma myself. You know, and I think the thing is is that to be a trauma-informed society it means that we're helping people when they need it. It's actually not that complex. We need to be able to show up mm-hmm. uh with love and with kindness. and help people face their troubles the sooner the better um so that everybody can have an opportunity to thrive so i want to just i don't i'm so passionate i like you i can just talk on and on and on and i've got to wrap this up um but thank you Jessica Robinson i thank you for coming into my life for being such an inspiration for continuing to be the voice for your sister and for so many people who could end up like your sister if they don't receive the right support at the right time. So is there anything else you want to say? I would love to give you the last word. Um no, just just keep up keep up the good fight. Keep helping these people. That's that's all we can do with trauma and grief is learn from it and and help others get through it too. So you're a pretty amazing person too and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Jessica. Okay. So that was today's guest, Jessica Robinson. Uh that woman and mother and warrior inspires me uh beyond measure. Uh I have learned so much about the as she said nitty-gritty details of of advocacy. Um what I would like to leave you with as I am getting ready to interview an upcoming guest uh who is a special education teacher dealing with um 
children with multiple diagnoses in her classroom and does not have enough support and often there's violence and behavior that could be criminalized and she is compassionate and deeply worried is that we all need to slow down a little bit just slow down and focus on what matters um it really is about all of us meeting the emotional needs it is about attachment it is about healthy connection those are the things that actually help human beings thrive uh, we can look at all the outcomes um, and we can review them over and over with a uh, level of scrutiny if we choose or we can look at it with a level of compassion um, but the truth is from an educated perspective we do know that what helps heal um, outcomes that are not healthy is being trauma-informed, understanding that behavior is always a symptom um, and that with love, compassion, and education and showing up in a meaningful way in real time, which is something that we are capable of doing. We have the information, we have the education, we have models globally uh, in terms of uh, education as well as custody that are much more advanced than what we are offering that are helping people and have uh, early intervention that is meaningful as well as 80% rehabilitation rates in custody in places like Norway. Um, you know, when we know better, we should do better. So why aren't we doing better? That's the big question. Thank you for joining me. This is Andrea Page of Hanging On For Hope. I will see you next time. Practically distance.